Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Another meeting of the EU's 27 leaders is underway. The summit looks like it's going to be uh, very interesting indeed. China uh, was a partner, is still a partner, but it's also a competitor. What is critical is sending uh, ammunition to Ukraine fast, because that might uh, bring a change in, in this war. I'm Suzanne Lynch. And this week's EU Confidential is coming to you from the European Council in Brussels. The economy and Europe's competitiveness is the big topic on the agenda at this two-day summit. We'll get to that later in the podcast in conversation with Susan Danger, the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce EU. But the economy isn't the only thing on leaders' minds as they gather around the council table. The EU is poised to make an historic shift when it comes to EU defence policy and jointly procuring arms for Ukraine. And UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres is here in Brussels to talk about sanctions, food supply and Ukraine. Uh, This visit demonstrates the excellent cooperation between the European Union and the United Nations. This is indeed a crucial moment. We have a perfect storm in many developing countries, a combination of factors that led to a very dramatic situation. The sustainable development goals are moving backwards. More hunger, more poverty, less education, less health services in so many parts of the world. And uh, it is clear that uh, our international financial system is not fit for purpose to deal with such a huge challenge. Meanwhile, domestic upheaval in France over pension reform plans has French President Emmanuel Macron on his heels. We'll debate how this is impacting his political capital at home and here in Brussels when he meets EU leaders. So to do that, let's bring in our star panel. I'm joined here in the European Council building by Jacopo Baragazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Ciao, Suzanne. And by Clea Calcutta. He's over from Paris to help us cover the summit here in Brussels. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you both with us. Look, Jacobo, let's turn to you first. One of the big themes here today is the whole issue of EU defence and help and providing ammunition for Ukraine. What are leaders discussing here this week at the summit? They are giving their blessing to this plan to provide the 1 million ammunitions to Ukraine in 12 months, one year, and spending 2 billion euros for that. What is new is mainly the fact that they'll jointly procure a part of these ammunitions and that this is also meant to give a boost to the European military industry. Although for the moment there is no money yet on the table for this boost. That's going to be one of the big debates. And 
It's a big moment for Europe, really. I mean, this shift towards the EU becoming some kind of a defence union, that was always supposed to be the job in NATO, wasn't it? Yes, but a combination of factors. The whole thing started in 2016, which is when uh, Donald Trump was elected. And uh, now, with uh, the war and Putin, uh, this gave another boost to this shift. But anyway, there was something already going on, and the best evidence was, is the fact that the current president of the European Commission is a former defense minister. Mm, interesting. And as you point out, I mean, the point there about Trump is that Europe realized it was kind of more isolated than it had been, that it couldn't just depend on America. Is that thinking? Yes. And now the fear is that uh, next year Europe could find itself isolated once again if the elections in the US go in a direction of the Republican Party where uh, the two main leaders are not so keen to actually be engaged in the war in Ukraine. That's true. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, one of the frontline contenders for the Republican nomination, have both suggested that they've limited interest in keeping money and earned flowing to Ukraine. So, interesting point. But it is controversial for the EU. I mean, certain countries are military neutral. We still do technically have six EU countries that are not member of NATO. Sweden and Finland, we think, are poised to join NATO, although it is being held up, particularly the Swedish bid. But it's still these four countries that are, you know, see themselves not really military aligned. What about them? I mean, are there opt-out provisions in this plan? Um, for example, there is also the issue of Hungary that doesn't want to provide weapons to Ukraine. But in that case, they use a tool which is called constructive abstention which means that you let the whole thing going ahead without giving it your full backing, which also means that the countries who don't give it the full backing, their money won't be used to buy weapons or ammunition, but for other things such as humanitarian help. But anyway, listen, by the standards of Brussels, this whole thing was agreed in five weeks, which is amazing. And that's an interesting point you make there, that it's not just those four military uh, unaligned countries, it's also other countries like Hungary that have a kind of a different objection, and that's why they're not getting involved. And actually, one thing I think that's interesting in the last few years, we always heard from the Eastern European countries, that they saw military power as an issue for NATO, and they were kind of sceptical about the EU getting more power in the issue of defence. But that's changed. Here's the Estonian Prime Minister, Kaja Kallas. She was the Prime Minister who actually brought up this plan for procuring ammunition jointly for Ukraine at the last summit. Here she is speaking on her way into this week's summit on Thursday. Last time I made a proposal regarding the ammunition and the joint procurement and I'm really happy that in five weeks we have been able to come up with the, uh, with the agreement on this and, uh, and I would really like to thank... Uh, so Jacobo, how is this going to happen? I mean you made the very valid point it took the EU quite a rapid, it was a rapid turnaround, five weeks to agree this. But, I mean, does Europe have the capacity? I'm, I'm seeing clips of Thierry Breton, the French commissioner, going around to factories trying to get ammunition manufacturing up and running. But realistically, what kind of challenges are here in terms of the EU really becoming a major joint investment player and procurer of arms? You are so right that still on a Sunday morning uh, it was unclear whether this language over the one million ammunition in 12 months uh, was a language that the uh, ambassadors could have agreed. And the reason why so was unclear was that uh, many diplomats uh, were not sure that it was going to be feasible. And then at the end they agreed also because they're assured by the Commission that it's going to be feasible. And uh, so, of course, uh, if this doesn't happen, the EU will lose its face. 
but uh, the fact that this language is there, it's a sign that they trust the assurances they got. Although, again, uh, this is just uh, a very first step and uh, they will need anyway to do much more if they really want to boost uh, their industrial capacity. Yeah, I mean, we've got two prongs here. They're trying to make sure they can keep helping Ukraine, but they also need to replenish their own military stocks. And you already have countries on their own doing, investing more in defence, Germany, for example. And this EU idea would kind of run along in parallel to that. Thanks for that, Jacopo. Clea, turning to you, it's all about France and Germany again. There's been a lot of talk in the run-up to this summit that this might maybe hijacked again by the two big players, France and Germany. There has been a, a bit of tension between the two players and Macron has been having domestic problems of his own. Yes, indeed. And uh, it will be interesting to see how that sort of impacts the mood in the room here. So there's a big day of demonstrations today in, in Paris with trade unions calling for strikes. So waste collectors, public transport, everything is disrupted. It's actually a surprise that he managed to make it here, but he has made it here. And all that follows events last week when he pushed through deeply unpopular pensions reforms which um, basically he bypassed a parliament vote because in the run-up to the vote he expected not to have enough MPs backing his plans. So the big picture for Macron is that in his second mandate he didn't have, he was sort of in a minority in, in parliament and said that he would work to, you know, with the opposition and would manage to govern the country. And at the moment there's a big question mark over whether what he's going to do for the next four years of his mandate, how he's going to manage things. Now, in the room here, what will be interesting is to see how, I mean, he's driven conversations on a lot of topics at the EU level, whether he manages to continue to drive topics. What is um, actually a little bit of a, an irony is that Macron pushed through this pension reform to give him more clout on the international scene, to show that France could reform itself and that despite having really high levels of public debt, it could actually make cuts and, in this case, address the pension system. Now, obviously, on Thursday, one of the big issues he wants to tackle is this e-fuels topic with Germany. Yeah, we touched on this last week on the podcast. We went into this in detail, and that was about Germany's kind of rearguard action to change the script, change the rules on a new proposal by the EU to phase out the combustion engine by 2035. Germany is not happy, and it's trying to get carved out, essentially. This is now threatening to bubble up as one of the big issues at this summit? Absolutely. I mean, France has been very gung-ho ahead of it. Like, we've heard the economy minister, Bruno Le Maire, saying it was dangerous to reopen this. Ahead of the summit, Elysee officials were saying that they would be very vigilant that Germany would not convince leaders or the commission to reopen the deal over the phasing out of petrol and diesel cars in 2035. They want that date of 2035 to remain etched in stone. So that's really going to be one of their driving points at the summit. So for its part, France also has got some issues. And in particular, it wants nuclear energy to be included in some EU proposals. Yeah, indeed. I mean, what Emmanuel Macron and basically French politicians are concerned about and disappointed is that they feel that EU leaders and the Commission have a kind of lackadaisical, uh, one-time yes, one-time no approach to nuclear power. And they feel that they're being discriminated against as the sort of champion of nuclear power. So in the net zero industry 
Act, for example, they managed to get nuclear power included, but only in a limited fashion. So only sort of, you know, experimental nuclear power uh, reactors. But it's not set in stone that nuclear power is one of the big elements of this legislation. And that's the legislation that was introduced last week by the European Commission as a kind of counter to the American Inflation Reduction Act. So about improving European competitiveness and accelerating the green transition. This net zero industry act was one element of that, yeah. Exactly. And what Emmanuel Macron wants to do at at this summit is to kind of pull the brakes and say, listen, what is our position? And to kind of drag people, you know, back together, knock heads together and get them to finally back uh, nuclear power. A similar issue came up last year and they won that battle. This time they want a strategic discussion about nuclear power and that obviously will push them heads on into a battle with Germany. Because, as we know, Germany has phased out nuclear. So Macron, you know, you've got some of the countries in Europe who use nuclear, some who don't. We had an interview this week on Politico with the Luxembourg Prime Minister, Xavier Bettel, usually seen as a real ally of Macron. He was very strong, saying, you know, nuclear, he doesn't see it as safe, he doesn't see it as reliable, and that he made the point that, yes, it's up to member states, each country to pick their own energy mix, but this should not get an EU label. So it's kind of a really interesting uh, division that we're seeing in the EU that may play out at this summit. So finally, I mean, do you expect then any kind of bilateral discussions between France and Germany, or is this going to kind of dominate all the discussions generally about the economy and the competitiveness here? Yes, I mean, it's a lot of people are saying that it will bubble up within the sort of summit discussions, that it's dominated the sort of back and forth between the Commission and Germany and that, you know, France has been chiming in, that it's bound to impose itself. I mean, what is clear is that there is going to be a bilateral between Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron, and that might happen on Thursday, but we were told it's probably on, on Friday in which they might, you know, address this issue between the two countries. But what is clear is that around the room, there might be a sense that the sort of differences and and squabbles between France and Germany once more are sort of dominating discussions. And I did hear, I'm paraphrasing slightly, an EU ambassador ahead of this meeting saying it's almost like they don't want the children to overhear in the room, which is quite... (laughs) It was said with a note of sarcasm, but that idea that, you know, they don't want the whole family getting involved in this very personal quarrel between France and Germany. So let's see how that plays out. Clea, Jacobo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we'll turn to one of the big themes of this week's EU summit, and that is the whole issue of EU competitiveness and the economy. Also, we'll have our Decoding Brussels segment, where we'll demystify some of the terms that are used here in the Brussels bubble. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, 
significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. I'm joined now by Barbara Munns, our senior trade correspondent. Hi there, Barbara. Hi, Suzanne. We've been busy working, you and I, on a piece on Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, that landed this week, and you can check out on politico.eu. But now we're turning our sights to the European summit that's happening here as we record this. Barbara, look, one of the big themes this week at the summit is the whole issue of the economy and competitiveness. And this idea that the EU needs to respond to America's actions on the Inflation Reduction Act and try and help its own industries, really. Yeah, indeed. So the Commission recently had this series of proposals, right, as a kind of EU response to the US Inflation Reduction Act, but also just, you know, during years, the growing Chinese subsidies. So we saw different proposals from the Commission, specifically the Net Zero Industry Act. And so today, the idea is that leaders will discuss those proposals and also kind of have a feeler of, you know, moving towards the June summit where they will again discuss this issue and specifically on whether we need next steps when it comes to European money for this so-called European Sovereignty Fund. So it's kind of a in-between summit when it comes to the industrial policy, I would say, especially looking forward to the June discussion. Yes, there's a really interesting debate about how does the EU effectively counter what the US is doing in terms of subsidies. And then, as you say, the big elephant in the room is how are they going to pay for this you know is there going to be a new eu fund there was talk of an eu sovereignty fund but so far there's been not really any developments on that yeah exactly so we had this proposal to relax the state aid rules by the european commission which is sensitive to a lot of specifically smaller eu countries who don't have big pockets to grant that many state aid subsidies as for example germany does so they are the countries that are more looking to this european sovereignty fund but at this point it seems like the big political discussion on how to finance that, whether to do it or not, is kind of put on hold also, I think, to see a little bit how, you know, how the economy reacts. In the fall, we had kind of the combination of the discussion on the Inflation Reduction Act and then the high energy prices, right? So a lot of growing alarm bells from industry. That is a little bit less the case now. So I think it's also a little bit to be seen whether, you know, political leaders still capitalize on this momentum or whether this will, you know, kind of slowly fade away as we have other issues that keep coming up the European political agenda. And of course, on Friday, we're going to have the European Central Bank President, Christine Lagarde, and Pascal Donoghue, the Eurogroup chief, joining EU leaders to talk about the economy and also the recent banking crisis that we saw in America and with Credit Suisse, with a lot of messaging here at the summit being from EU leaders that, you know, nothing to see here, nothing, no threat of contagion just yet anyway. And they're the kind of issues that are going to be discussed here on Friday too. Earlier we caught up with Susan Danger, the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce, about what they're hearing from American businesses working here in the EU. The American Chamber of Commerce to the EU based in Brussels, known as AmCHAMEU, represents over 160 American companies invested in and committed to Europe. 
So you guys are out this week with a new report on transatlantic relations and the state of the EU-US economy. Tell us more. We're really positive. We've come out with this report and actually expecting perhaps some more negative figures considering the tumultuous times we've been through and the geopolitical climate. I don't have to tell you all about that. But actually, the statistics are really great. I mean, the overriding message was that the EU-US economy remains the largest and the most robust in the entire world. It shows also that incredible resilience that it's shown throughout what has been the turmoil of these last years. Did you know, in fact, that 61% of all US global investment goes to Europe? Mm. That's a huge amount. So it really shows you the strength of that relationship. Yeah, I saw, again, another figure, $1.2 trillion in transatlantic trade and goods, for example, last year. So it's, as you say, really resilient. And yet we have had a period, we've been covering it here a lot on the podcast, of strains, particularly in that economic relationship. How do you assess Europe's response to America's Inflation Reduction Act, for example, and the kind of issues that EU leaders are speaking about this week at their summit in Brussels? Yes, indeed. There have been some tensions. If you look at that overall relationship, uh, it's been up and down over the last few years. Last year, indeed, this Inflation Reduction Act did come out with the aim, one of the main aims was to combat climate change, which actually we very much support as AMCHAM EU and Europe as well. And it seemed to have some potentially unintended consequences, which did indeed cause some a few little ruptures. But as a result of that, we've seen a huge amount of dialogue very encouraged. They immediately formed an Inflation Reduction Act task force, which has met nine to 10 times with players from each side of the Atlantic. I think importantly, just 10 days ago, President Biden met with President von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, at the White House, and really sort of moved things on. And we're looking at some sort of resolutions of where there were these sort Mm. of tricky issues, Uh, in particular, you know, the feeling that it had been protectionist and that this was really going to have a negative impact on European companies. Yeah, and as we heard earlier in the podcast, at the summit uh, this week, EU leaders are considering really for the first time these key proposals that the European Commission has come forward with as a kind of riposte to the IRA. What do you believe is the state of the of EU competitiveness at the moment? We're hearing stories, for example, Volkswagen saying that it's going to put on pause investment in Europe because they're getting more help in the US and they're going to wait to see what the Europeans come out with instead. Um, do you think that Europe can compete or it needs to up its game to ensure that companies that you represent continue to invest in Europe? I think many of our companies at the moment, there are some deep concerns. So in spite of the figures, which are really strong, which I think tells the story of why they care. So they do care. I think that's very important to note. They care about this relationship. They care about Europe. At the same time, indeed, they are concerned about the competitiveness. If you take into account these last few years, what companies have been through with regard to COVID, the pandemic, and the impact on their businesses, regardless of the sector, then you take into account the war in Ukraine, the invasion, which just like to put it out that we fully condemn. Uh, Therefore, then the impact on supply chains, the impact on energy, food crisis, you name it, inflation, also wages, huge impact on companies just generally in Europe, probably, you know, more so than on the other side of the Atlantic. So with that, then you go back to the previous discussion we just had, Inflation Reduction Act. That's been a bit of a wake up call, because what the IRA or IRA, as we call it here, exposed was this incentive scheme, which is very simple. All our businesses are commenting on how simple it is, how easy it is for businesses to use. It's an incentive, carrot-based approach. It's been a wake-up call, I think, for Europe to say, well, you know, what are you doing here? We want to be here, but here it's just complicated. It's not simple at all. 
the my main concern is the regulatory burden. So it's not only the amount of regulation, a lot of regulation can be good. It's the complexity of that regulation that needs to be diminished. It's taking time, it's, it's making costs, it's significant impact. So this would be really sort of top of the agenda. So then you asked about the sort of green industrial plan. This is the response, the European potential response that's probably come out a little bit quicker than it might have done. I think there was some aspects of it, the Net Zero Act, for example. There, we still need to wait and see about what the scope of it needs to be. It's possibly a little bit limited, so there might be concerns about that. I mean, what kind of examples are there of, of what you're speaking about there? Well, maybe let me give you the example with re- regard to the, the act that's come out, which again is too soon for us to analyse fully. Think about how we're trying to achieve and mitigate climate change. Think about solar panels, wind turbines, these industries, these clean tech industries that are trying to achieve those targets. But for those industries to do well, they require components from all down the value chain. They still require plastics, they require chemicals in order to produce. But some of these acts are maybe just being a little bit narrower and being a bit too prescriptive on how we're going to achieve these decarbonisation targets, how we're going to reduce carbon emissions by focusing on certain industries. They need to take that whole value chain into account and certainly not be prescriptive about what technologies are used or not. That would be our concern. I mean, one interesting finding from the report was the fact that LNG sales from America to Europe shot up last year. And it has to be said, there were some suspicions here in Brussels by some countries that, you know, the US was, quote unquote, profiting or benefiting from the fact that Europe was rapidly trying to reduce its dependence on Russian gas. But on the more general issue, you were talking about the different cost pressures, wages and the regulatory burden. What about energy? I mean, is that a big concern for American businesses working in Europe? Well, in terms of costs, absolutely it has. The energy costs have had massive impact. And I think also coupled with, you know, talking to some companies over the last few days, it's also then that impact on inflation and that itself had the impact on wages. And therefore, for some companies, this is just unsustainable. So what you're going to see is an, a knock-on effect of, okay, we put in place all these different inflationary pressures, but then jobs going to have to go. So then you have the impact on jobs. But back to energy you referred to yeah, the LNG imports actually reverting back to the overall relationship. I mean, Europe has really should be very, very grateful for uh, US stepping up. The figure is actually two and a half times higher, those US LNG exports to Europe than they were in 2021. So it's massive. Interesting. One of the themes, if you like, of the transatlantic relationship at the moment is the idea of closer cooperation or the idea of friend shoring. So in other words, you do business with like-minded countries. But as a kind of counterweight to China, do you think this dynamic is going to continue to underpin the EU-US relationship over the next few years? I think it is. I think you've got some good fora that have now been set up. Maybe let's use the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council, as an example, which was set up you know, a couple of years ago now. I mean, there's also up for debate about what it's delivering on. But I think the important thing here is it's delivering on dialogue. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you referred to China. It's about the EU and the US working more closely together. You know, the figures in the report show why we need to work together, why we benefit from being together. But in order to, you know, not duplicate, to be aligned, to sort of work together, to think strategically about supply chains, so to not be dependent on perhaps 
those who may not have the same values as us. So the TTC, if we go back to that, I think is a really important forum going back. We need to support it and we certainly are very supportive of it. Yeah, and we know that the next meeting of that Trade and Technology Council, that dialogue between the European Commission and US officials, that's due to take place at the end of May in Sweden. Finally, Susan, I have to ask, as someone who spends a lot of time in Washington representing US companies here in Europe, but also dealing with the policymakers in America, are we going to expect a Biden visit, do you think, soon? Or what do you think the focus will be in terms of what the US is thinking about the EU over the next few months. We're hearing, for example, in my own country, Ireland, we're expecting a visit from President Biden in April, potentially to Dublin and Belfast and Northern Ireland too. Do we expect him here in Brussels as well? I'm not sure my uh, chains of communication run that deep, but I would just like to say we would like to see him here. Actually, maybe I'll just put it out there, you know, to show how strong the ties between EU and US are. Suzanne Amchem, you celebrating 60 years. It's its 60th anniversary this year. So you know what? If I wanted to put out one call is President Biden, why don't you come over for that? Okay, if you're listening, Joe Biden, you've heard the call here first. Thanks a million, Susan, for joining us on EU Confidential. Pleasure. Thank you, Suzanne. So finally, on this week's episode, we're turning to our Decoding Brussels Speak segment where we demystify some of the words, some of the lingo, some of the language that's used around the EU Brussels bubble. So the word this week, very appropriately, is UCO. Jacopo, explain. Is the short for European Council, and European Council is the meeting of the European leaders. Okay, Claire. And my husband refuses that I use UCO because he says it makes me sound like a Brussels bureaucrat. So, but UCO also means council, European Council, and the council is the 27 heads of the European countries. Exactly. And we also refer to it as the EU summit. So, you know, I know in my own reporting for years, we said EU leaders are meeting for the EU summit. You can also say EU leaders are meeting for the European Council, and it's those regular meetings of the 27 heads of state that take place in this very building from where we're broadcasting. So thank you for that, Jacobo and Clea, shedding some light on some of the terminology that we know and love here in Brussels. And that's all we have for this edition of EU Confidential, coming to you from the European Council in Brussels. Please do follow the podcast wherever you're listening and we'd encourage you to share it with a friend or colleague. If you have ideas or feedback, you can get in touch with us directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer and editor, Christina Gonzalez, and to Zoe Bass. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.